Today we have Daphne Howland, Senior Reporter for Retail Dive. Retail Dive provides news and analysis for retail executives that cover topics like retail tech, marketing, e-commerce, logistics, and in-store operations. In this episode, we talk about how e-commerce brands are looking to partner with brick and mortar stores. We talk about how brick and mortar stores are trying to become more lifestyle focused, as well as some techniques for finding stories worth sharing. Let's get into it. You know, a lot has changed. So you've been covering retail for decades, as you say. Um, What are some of the things that, uh, I guess, the biggest change is obviously the internet, I would imagine. Um, Is there anything that you miss from the old days that you think we've lost now with uh, that retailers should maybe think about putting more of a focus on? It's funny because, you know, it's only in the past, whatever, it's been five, six years that I've covered retail that I think of it in exactly this way in a, as a business question. I, I think that there is an awful lot of attention being paid to shareholders right now. And I mean, I think the essence of retail is really about the customer and consumers. And even though, you know, we'll, it'll often, people will say it's the age of the consumer, but I'm not sure how many retailers are really successfully thinking about what their customers want when they devise their transformation strategies and their growth strategies and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, I don't know if it's quite answering your question, but things I miss would be, I guess, more retailers that really sort of paid attention to their customers in that sort of old fashioned fundamental way. Do you think people, the value of interacting with a person will always outweigh the efficiency of maybe of just shopping online and, or, and, or also will shopping lose a little bit of its human um, connection if they start moving towards self-checkouts and like all these kind of automated type services to make the shopping experience more efficient for the for the supplier that was a gigantic question that i was just kind of rambling on so no that's okay this is this is sort of how i ask my questions of my sources which i'm always glad that i'm a print reporter because i can get away (laughs) with not letting people know that um i I think it, this is sort of related to your original question, which is, you know, what do you miss? I, I, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about why I like reporting on retail so much, because I think there's so much of human nature is just entangled with the retail experience. It's not so much true when you just, you need band-aids or you, you know, need stuff for dinner or you need half and half for just to have in the fridge for your morning coffee. When you just need to grab stuff, that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about some fundamental, it's just fundamental human nature. And I think to the extent that we like to encounter fellow shoppers and God forbid, customer service in a store. I, I think that I think that as long as human beings have the discretionary income 
to be able to spend time and money that way, I think that we will appreciate it. That's a whole nother question, though, is how much of, you know, American consumers have enough discretionary income to contemplate spending too much time in stores on stuff they don't really need, you know? Through the pandemic, there were a lot of ways that retailers adapted to try to, you know, continue serving customers. Is there anything that they did that you think will stick and become just part of normal practice moving forward? I don't see things like curbside pickup going away. I mean, we all saw everyone do curbside. I mean, the smallest, uh, I even, there's like this secondhand clothing boutique here in Portland um, that was doing curbside and, you know, those are the kinds of things that are just for the modern, for just modern life, how busy people are. If you see an item and we're talking just like a used piece of clothing, you know, secondhand clothing. She posted on her Instagram page, uh, a customer reaches out, she's able to, you know, have it paid for and ready to be picked up on the customer's way home. I mean, that's an interaction that was not happening before the pandemic for a small business like that. And now is not going to go away because it's it's reaching people at a time when in a way that you know wasn't happening before uh i read something that the retail dive had put out and i think you wrote it but i'm not quite sure is um that for those small boutique brands there's more value in starting to partner with um brick and mortar shops because they're reaching a certain ceiling online. And um, I'm just curious, is that something that um, you think more online retailers should be thinking about is partnerships with, with bigger brick and mortar stores? Or um, I guess what, what has your research told you in, in, you know, in that kind of So this, you're talking about a report that came out of BMO Capital Markets, um, which is a financial firm, and um, Simeon Siegel, who's the managing director there. And it's absolutely fascinating what they found because so much of sort of Amazon is is what everyone thinks of when people think of e-commerce and the kind of disruption in retail. But when it comes to apparel, it's a lot of these direct-to-consumer companies happened in mattresses to, you know, Casper, Bonobos, all, you know, all kinds, Warby Parker, we know them all. We've discovered finally as these companies go public or get bought out, you know, Walmart bought Bonobos, for example, that these brands are not able to actually make money that scaling is really difficult the whole idea is you're a new you're a new brand you're going to sell directly you don't have to deal with middlemen that means that you can keep so much of the the money that you would spend paying someone else to sell your stuff you can 
pocket that money, the only thing that's keeping you from actually making a profit is reaching a certain scale where things flip and now you're profitable. That just hasn't really been working out. And it turns out that having other retailers sell your brand is an extremely efficient and profitable way of selling your stuff and reaching scale. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's another way of saying that the disruption of retail, you know, in most cases hasn't really happened. I mean, it's not very disruptive. You know, if, if your disruption involves coming up with a brand that you sell directly to people and can't be found in other stores, but you can't make money at it, it's not, you know, you know, I mean, old, old, you know, old Walmart might have a really old fashioned business model, but they also have been making money for now decades and decades. So, um, so that was a really interesting report and it's really good news for malls and department stores and anyone who sells other people's brands as long as other brand as as long as the brands you know get the message and realize actually we really do need Nordstrom to help us sell stuff or whoever does a unique kind of boutique online brand lose some of its cool factor if Walmart starts having its shirts on its shelves? It's almost like the like when you know a band before they're big and then the band gets big and then they kind of sell out and now it's like it's not cool anymore because everybody everybody knows them. I think there's no question that there is um you know a brand effect if you're selling at Walmart versus Nordstrom, right? I mean, there's, there's going to be for any brand and, and actually Simeon goes into this. If you, if you read the story that you're talking about, um, I asked Simeon about this and he said, you know, anytime you, any brand, the decision about who to partner with is part of your storytelling you know it's part of that decision um and it and it depends going back to thinking about who your customer is is your customer at walmart or is your customer at nordstrom probably if your customer is at walmart then it's not necessarily a branding mistake to end up at walmart because your customer is already you know that that shopper i've seen some things where like some brands are trying to transform into more of a lifestyle chase bank is kind of trying to become more of like a coffee shop hangout area i don't know if they're still doing that but they were testing that out at quite a few stores to kind of bring people into their doors and do work um i heard of a grocery store that is doing like singles night i don't know (laughs) that's probably like a a smaller um, experiment, but it was like all the single people go and shop on a single night or at a certain night. Um, and then I saw that you'd wrote, written something similar about um, Kohl's and they were, Kohl's was kind of reimagining their um, retail stores. And do you think that's something that's going to 
catch on is that there's going to be a transformation in how people think about these, these areas, or I mean, these stores, or um, I guess, is it just kind of an experiment and we'll, we'll have to wait and see, or what, what do you think? I feel like it's mostly wait and see. However, again, when Cole said that, first of all, the, the whole lifestyle concept that they said, they said they wanted, they, they wanted to pivot from being a department store to being a, a lifestyle concept. I think that those were their words. Um, I can understand why they would want to tell their shareholders that they, they're no longer a department store because departments, department stores are just not doing very well. And, and it, you know, people think of it as their grandmother's store. However, I'm not sure what a lifestyle concept is. So are they running away from the word department store or is this truly an idea that, you know, do you know what a lifestyle concept is? No, I guess I was kind of, I was kind of cruising through it and I just made that assumption that there was something like, like a chase or like, I, th I heard like Target was considering serving beer to their clients, like allowing company or yeah, allowing people to buy a beer and then do their shopping that they got their liquor license or something. That's interesting. But, so I thought it was something along those lines. Well, so I think one of the problems is they didn't offer what along, along what lines are they thinking really? They talked about, you know, what kinds of, you know, they want to be a de destination for activewear and, and things like that. Um, and beauty, but a lifestyle concept is more along the lines of what you're talking about and then how does it match with who their customers are one of the things about Kohl's that I always understood is because they're not at the mall it's easier to go there you know back in the day when department stores were doing really well people would spend hours at the mall or at the department store not necessarily shopping, maybe browsing and having lunch and maybe picking up a small thing and calling it good. I don't know anyone who has that kind of time. Maybe there's a small moment between middle school and high school when people have that kind of time, but otherwise, and even then, I'm not even sure, you know, no one spends their time that way anymore. So what I always heard was that Kohl's being in those, uh, you know, locations where it's easy to park, you go do your errand, maybe a little browsing, but get what you want. Don't get what you want. And you're done and out as opposed to a mall that kind of sucks you in and it's hard to navigate. And, you know, it's a big, long, you try to park near the store that you're going to, but oh, the parking part of the parking lot is full. Kohl's was always more convenient, which suggests that part of the point was to not spend too much time there. If you're a lifestyle concept and you're thinking of ways to increase the amount of time people are going to spend there, I think that's why people have cafes and um, singles nights and DJ Friday night DJ things. Um, 
but I don't know if that's the Kohl's customer. And I don't I don't know what Kohl's specifically has in mind, but maybe we'll hear more as they develop the idea. Do you think there's anything specific that um, retailers need to change to accommodate or attract like Gen Z shoppers? And I don't know that that Gen Z is going to have a lot of patience for retailers that kind of phone it in when it comes to some of these issues, but that, you know, that remains to be seen someday. Gen Z, once Gen Z starts buying houses and having families, maybe they'll get more conservative, but um, I don't think so. I, I feel like there are some real generational um, sort of adamant attitudes about towards some of this stuff. And I think the retailers that can demonstrate that they're really Kind of a random question, but how do you sniff out your stories or how do you like, is there, how does it work for a, a retail journalist or I guess any journalist for that matter, but do you, do you have your sources and they kind of tell you what's going on and then you decide what's interesting or how do you, how do you go about creating and writing this content and, and finding these stories? So, I mean, sharing? if you're talking about the daily news, it's all about, you know, sifting through press releases and SEC filings and stuff. Um, if you're talking about the more interesting stories, like the features where we come up with something to explore, I mean, that's, that's a matter of, you know, because I was a freelancer for so long, I was always trying to think up an angle and a story that I could sell to an editor and get an assignment. It's really the same process. It's like what, anytime a question occurs to you, it's probably the basis of a story. And then sometimes to really nail down the idea, I do have to talk to sources and check in with them. So what do you think? What's going on here? Um, or if I'm interviewing someone on something else, they might make a comment and I'll usually when it happens, I'll say out loud, this sounds like a story. Um, so, so, you know, it can come, it can just come to you. It can come from stuff people say. It can come after you've written three to five stories where this one thing keeps coming up. Maybe that's a trend and maybe that's something that's going on, you know. And then people do come to me. My DMs on Twitter are open. My, you know, my email is Daphne at industrydive.com. So if anyone ever has tips or anything they want to say, on the record, off the record, um, I do take suggestions, as many PR people have found. <laughs> Is there anything I haven't asked that you kind of that you want to share with the listeners, just as far as things that are top of mind or any hot topics that um, you'd like more attention given to? I mean, so I love this question. I always <laughs> end my interviews with that very question. So. Um, I would say that I think that there are a lot of 
assumptions about retail and the retail business and generally accepted truths that sort of a lot of observer observers just accept and are, you know, hold on to. And I think that, um, that things like e-commerce being e-commerce on the one hand is sort of here to stay. And on the other may not be the, the force that people think it is. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, there are a lot of stories in retail that still need to be told and um, are going to take some digging to sort of prove to the audience that um, this is true or this is not true. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I'll be working on. And um, I do think that there's a lot there. I think there's a lot of um, mis misconceptions or misassumptions about retail that are worth exploring. Well, Daphne, thank you for taking the time and coming on the show and um, sharing some things about retail. And uh, it was really a pleasure. Thank you, Danny. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.